Our first lesson comes from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Let us listen for God's word. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to, de to desire to do something, now finish doing it, so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For the, if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So I'm going to uh, let the kids stay put um, today instead of walking all the way down here. But I'd like to talk to everyone and call your attention to the graphic that is on the cover of your bulletin, which you will be uh, seeing a lot of in the next few weeks. Um, and I would invite you uh, to take the first letter of those four words and tell me what it spells. Gift, that's right. Our Stewardship Commission this year was very clever in picking a theme. The theme this year is gift, but it doesn't just mean a present under the tree at Christmas time. It means growing in faith together. So what is a gift? What's a gift? Something freely given. Okay. Yeah. Any other answers or thoughts? Everything. Everything. So when you think about everything we enjoy, everything that makes your life possible, to the air we breathe and the food we eat and the people in our lives, we realize that so much of everything that we have has, is a gift. It's given to us. There isn't a lot we did I mean, yes, we work hard, we do things to make sure we have those things, but on the other hand, a lot of that came from people and places far beyond ourselves, or from the energy that lots of other people, like our families and our teachers, put into us to help us grow into the people we are today. So yeah, all of life is a gift. And that's kind of what our Stewardship Commission is hoping you all will be thinking about over the next several weeks, that this idea of stewardship and giving isn't just about money or particular things, fundraising, whatever. It's a much bigger issue than that. We all have gifts to share. And the Stewardship Commission is inviting us to expand our understanding of what giving is about. We can give of so many different ways and parts of ourselves. As Deanna said, a gift is something freely given of ourselves. So what are some things that are gifts that you will not find under a tree at Christmas or on a next to a birthday cake. Friendship. Friendship, love, others? Gift of listening. Listening, yeah, the gift of presence, the, the gift of just being there for someone who needs some friendship or support. Health. Health, health is a gift. The gift of community. The gift of community, of being together as a uh, church family, yeah? Other ideas? Kindness. Kindness. 
Yeah, even our words, the words we speak, can be a gift. So what if we stopped and thought about that before we said anything and said, how, are, how is whatever it is I'm going to say, how is that going to be a gift to the people that I'm saying it to? It might change what we decide to say, right? So our idea, our, our hope for this next few weeks is that you will think about this idea of gift and how it is that as we grow in faith together, we become more and more of the aware of the gifts we all have and the many ways that God is calling us to share them with the world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your tremendous abundance, for showering so many gifts upon us, um, especially as we sit here in this uh, historic sanctuary, as we sit here in this community of faith, um, with freedom to worship and to love and to live our lives. We are so very grateful, God, and we ask that in the coming weeks you will help us grow in our understanding of what it means to be a gift to this world you love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our second scripture lesson today comes from the first uh, from 1 Peter chapter 4. Listen again for God's word. The end of all things is near. Therefore be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. It's been an unsettling week, to say the least. For many of us, as we have learned about the horrific assault on Israel by Hamas and then watched the ensuing violence and, su and suffering unfold before our eyes, there's so much pain and grief, anger and tension in the air as we wrestle with how to understand and respond to this war and the horrific toll it is taking. When our son called us from college yesterday, even he told us about the turmoil and tension that has erupted on campus, as it has in so many places around the country and the world. To make matters worse, misinformation and vitriol continue to spread on social media, and I've even heard some of our more conservative brothers and sisters talking about the end times again, as if that somehow helps them make sense of things. We Presbyterians are not known for preaching, teaching, or planning for the end times, as it is mentioned in our second scripture reading today. It's hard for me to hear the end of all things is near and not think of people I have seen standing on street corners wearing sandwich boards and preaching or yelling the same thing. The end is near. It's hard for me not to hear the judgment in their voices about what will happen to me if I don't do what they say. It reminds me of all those fun little catchphrases that I grew up hearing and even using myself. Preaching like those people would say, you need to get right or get left. You need to turn or you need to burn. And one of my personal favorites, 
you either need to get sanctified or you need to get french fried. <laughs> I have never thought of hell as something like french fries. Maybe because I like them too much. I think what they're trying to tell us is what, real, is what really motivates them. A belief that God will send some people to heaven and others to hell in the final judgment at the end of time. Because we don't know when that end will come, we better get right with God now, they say, before we get left behind. You see, they believe that Jesus will come back one day. And when he does, it will be in Jerusalem. That's where he will judge between those who believed in him and those who didn't. He will reward those who believed with heaven and condemn those who didn't to spend eternity in hell. One of many things that worries me about this viewpoint, this Christian Zionism, as it's called, and the people who push it, is that they need Jerusalem and Israel to exist so that their religious views can happen. And that's it. They don't really need Israel or Jews for any other reason, which makes Israel and Jews instruments for Christians. Not people to know, not people with a religion in and of themselves, not people to love, not people to stand by or call to account at times, or to learn how to walk with and struggle together. Like when you treat people as people, just instruments to some greater, and in their case, self-centered end. And never mind what it means for Palestinians. Preaching that the end is near stems from the belief of the early church in the first century and many others since that time that their generation might be the last generation before Christ returns, something that Christ promised himself. But 2,000 years later, it still hasn't happened. The world and its people are still here, which is why the end of all things is near has come to mean something very different for me. The Greek word for end is telos. The word means far more than just the termination of all things. Telos refers to a goal achieved, a result attained, a realization, an end goal, a purpose fulfilled. The root tell means reaching the end or aim of something. It's illustrated by that old image of a sea captain's telescope unfolding or extending one stage after another until it has reached full capacity or effectiveness. That understanding of the end of all things shifts our perspective from some future date that we can't control and will never know to what is happening right now in front of us, what's within our power and ability to shape a realization, a purpose fulfilled, a goal achieved, a result attained. It becomes less focused on a hope we can pray perhaps will happen one day, or more on the realization of who we are becoming and how we are bringing our hopes and dreams to fruition here and now, and even for how we pray as Peter writes. Last night I attended the family Shabbat service at Temple Betham here in Yorktown. I didn't attend because I wanted to make a statement or pick sides in the horrible events going on in Israel and Palestine. I did it to be with people who were scared. 
people with whom I have built a relationship over the last 14 years. During his sermon, Rabbi, Rabbi Robbie Weiner said something that caught my attention in relation to our passages today. He quoted Rabbi David Walp from the Anti-Defamation League, who asked the question, what is the most important sentence in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures? Some will say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But other rabbis point to a verse well before that one in Genesis chapter 5 that reads, this is the book of the generations of Adam. They point to this verse about where human beings come from because when God created human beings, God made them in the image of God. Rabbi Wolk goes on to say, God created us from one person, a couple really, so that, no one, so that no one can claim their ancestor is greater than any others. We are not only kin, he says, but we are each created in the image of God. And this is how he concludes that. This is a particularly powerful teaching this week. When human beings commit evil acts, we condemn them not because they're animals, but because they are human and they are violating the image of God within them. We do not judge lions for their savagery, but we do judge human beings because they are capable of better. When we see those whom they have victimized, we feel the same. Overwhelming empathy for images of God who are suffering. All of this has helped me look at our stewardship theme for this fall and the readings for today in deeper ways. Our theme this, fall, this year is gift, and our stewardship commission creatively saw the phrase growing in faith together in those words. How are we growing? Growing in faith, growing in faith together to become gener the generous people God intends, our theme asks us to consider. How are we embodying that growth in who we are and what we do individually and together. I like this theme for many reasons. It assumes that we're meant to grow. It assumes that faith isn't something separate from life, but is deeply embedded within it. It assumes that we are meant to grow in faith together. And I can't help but hear now that growing in faith together has an end, a purpose, a goal, a realization that is far more than just some focus on the next life. That end, it seems to me, is how we will grow in faith together to nurture the image of God within each of us, in us together, and in this world God loves. I mean, frankly, I don't want to worry about the next life which ultimately is beyond our understanding and control. I want to focus on who I am here and now, who we are, who God is calling us to be as the people God created, redeems, and sustains in Jesus Christ, not just for our own well-being, but for the well-being of the whole world. Who we are to be, Peter says, is good stewards, good stewards of the manifold grace of God, now, at first, Tammy and I looked for a different word than manifold to use because I kept thinking in terms of the manifold in a car that takes air into the mix with fuel to make the engine work. 
But when I looked up the meaning of the word manifold, we learned that it actually means marked by diversity or variety, as in, a multi, as in multifaceted or having many different colors or faces. I'd never really thought about God's grace that way, as manifold, multifaceted, showing different faces in different ways. What Peter is saying is that there isn't only one way that the grace of God comes to us, and there isn't just one way to share it with other people. So good, so good stewards or managers of the, of the manifold grace of God love one another, not to cover up sin, but to uncover the image of God more deeply than all that is broken. Good stewards of the manifold grace of God welcome one another because they see the image of God in others, and they want to offer the same radical hospitality that they received from God. Good managers, good stewards, serve one another with whatever gift or gifts they have received to do so. They speak like their words carry the words of God. They serve with the strength God gives them. Good stewards do all these things because the goal of growing in faith together is gifting the world with God's manifold grace. They see that goal as the reason a ministry like this even exists. Peter's words invite us to think intentionally about how we participate in growing in faith together. I imagine he wants his readers to be intentional about it because it's so easy to reduce what we do to a list of tasks with no reflection on who we are. That's what Paul is writing about in our first reading. He wanted those Corinthian Christians to excel in everything, in faith, in speech, knowledge, eagerness, in love, and in generosity. He wanted their love to display the generosity in the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he put it. Paul didn't make faith about some other life because Jesus didn't either. Jesus entered fully into this life. He entered, into a, he entered this life with a love that helps us remember who we are, a love that enters into the joys and sorrows of life, a love that is so deep that he would not participate in the power struggles of this world, but would die before harming the image of God in someone else. He didn't simply do that for just you or just me. He did that to show us the way of love and generosity that we're called to embody for others. Unfortunately, some of Paul, the folks in, Paul's, in the Corinthian church still didn't get it. They saw the work of faith in church simply as what they could or could not do. And more often, they saw, what they saw was what they did not have and could not do letting their deficits guide their choices and limit their growth as people of faith. That's why Paul ends our reading by saying, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I mean, too often we make decisions in life based on what we don't have or think we don't have. I mean, here are some of the ones I've learned in my ministry. I can't join a Bible study or, or help with Sunday school because I don't know enough about the Bible. I can't sing in the choir because I don't know how to read music and my voice isn't loud enough. 
I can't help out with youth group or the food pantry or serve as an elder or deacon because I don't have the time and I don't know enough about it. I can't serve on a committee or as an elder or deacon because I don't know enough people. I can't make a pledge to our ministry because I don't know what else I might need the money for. I can't share my gifts or give more because of everything else I don't have. The point of participating in all the ways that we grow in faith and put our faith into action here is not to point out to you what you don't know, what you can't do, and what you don't have. Our purpose as a ministry, our telos, the end goal, is to invite you to share what you do have because we create something more together than we do individually. And according to Peter, you and I already have the gift of grace in all its various colors and forms ready to gift that grace to others. So what's the limiting statement that rattles around in your own head that's keeping you from growing in faith next? A gift is acceptable, Paul writes, when you give what you have. There really isn't any other kind of gift, is there? It really isn't a gift if you feel guilty about what you gave. It really isn't a gift if you don't feel generous in giving it. What Paul invites us to do is to be generous because that's who we are. And this ministry here and now is an example of that. I mean, just look back. It's as we look back on who we've been and as we reach forward to the goal of who we can be. To be people, like Paul said, who excel in everything, in faith, in speech, knowledge, eagerness, in love and generosity. So when Peter writes that the end of all things is near... How are you growing in faith together so that you're a part of reaching that goal and purpose for this ministry? So that you are gifting this world with the manifold grace, with all the gifts you have in your daily life and in our life together. Our answers to that aren't just for us alone. Our answers are for the ministry we share and the one we have committed to. Because we will have reached our goal, our end, our fulfillment as a church when the image of God is celebrated in all people and in all the earth. And when the gifts that are so abundant here are offered and shared so that all the world may know God's love and grace, God's justice and God's peace. Amen.